Welcome to Kick-Ons, the pop culture after-party for people who need just a little bit more. We're two friends, Jason and Steph, and we aren't quite ready to sleep on all things pop culture. Welcome to Kick-Ons, because the party's not over. The night is young, no we're not done. Party back at ours, everybody's welcome to the kick-ons. You're welcome. Welcome to Kick-Ons, the pop culture after party for people who want just a little more. Jason. Tell me everything about yourself, Steph. (laughs) We hoped and dreamed that this day would come and honestly didn't think it would be this easy. The thing I'm really discovering is that New Zealand is a special place. It really is. We're all two degrees of separation. We are. We're all one DM away from another person. Thank you, Instagram, (laughs) literally. We have been talking about our guest today. I'm going to say most episodes we mention her. Definitely at least five times in a row. Yeah. yeah. And then I have to apologize for like pushing an agenda just in case. That you you don't have. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Convince the listeners that you don't have an agenda, but we absolutely have one. Yeah. There's no bias here. Okay. So our guest today needs no introduction to kick on's listeners, but we're going to give you one anyway. After a high profile but unsuccessful run for the Auckland Meralty in 2016, our guest switched gears from the world of business and fashion to politics. She stood in the 2017 general election and at age 23 became the youngest member of New Zealand's parliament since 1975. Since then, her profile as a member of the Green Party has only risen and she is somewhat of a voice for the millennial generation. Her iconic OK Boomer response to National MP Todd Muller went viral last year and this year she is running for the Auckland Central Electorate. She is the Green Party spokesperson for drug reform, an advocate for mental ill health, and honestly, just such a vibe. Please pinch us and welcome Chloe Swarbrick to Kick On! Welcome to Kick On's Chloe! I'm so stoked that you've been saying nice things about me for ages. But yeah, New Zealand, we're tiny. Yeah, we are tiny. I think that's like... Lucky. I mean, just to, you know, boost your ego straight away. The fact that the way you speak to your followers on Instagram and engage in conversations with people is like so important. And I think really something that you have over all the other, you know, MPs that you're kind of racing against. Is that the right term? Racing? (laughs) I think one of the real um, things about that uh, is that you know, a lot of politicians are really worried about how they're going to be viewed in like 10 or 20 or 30 years. Whereas like, I'm not really worried about a meme or a tweet popping up in 10 or 20 years. Cause I don't really want to be in parliament for 10 or 20 years. I want to do stuff. <laughs> now. <laughs> like one of the real, the real problems is people are just like focused on being there as long as inhumanly possible. And that is a problem. <laughs> that is a problem because like, I mean, in any job, if you're there for ages, you get stuck in your ways and things just become the norm. And it's like, okay, well, that's how we do things here. And there's like no refreshing kind of change, which is well, why and it's also, the fresh air. Well, thank you. Um, but no, I mean, I 
that, that, that argument around life experience, right? So, like, it was really funny to me um, when I first ran um, for the Auckland Mayoralty in 2016 and then for Parliament in 2017 um, is folks going, oh, you've got no life experience because, you know, you're in your early 20s. And I was like, well, firstly, what's your life experience done for us? Like, to be perfectly honest with you, <laughs> yeah, we've got all these problems and you haven't managed to solve them. You've actually produced them. But also, and I mean, you know, no shade, but certain people who've spent the last, like, 20 or 30 or 40 years of their life, you can't pretend that you've just been collecting pearls of wisdom like it's some video game or something. It's actually that arguably you've spent more time being stuck in your ways and that becomes a problem because mm. you become more conservative and actually want to protect the way things are because you can predict it as opposed to trying to change things to work better for everybody else who isn't in your position. Absolutely. So and even now I feel like um, – people are like coming around to certain things that, you know, even four years ago, they're a hard no on that thing. And now because it's uh, like cool or uh, Mm. like people are saying, (laughs) the the loud voice is saying, oh, this is something that needs to change. They're like, yeah, well, I've thought that all along. It's like, well, no, you haven't. (laughs) Yeah. No, actually, so I, um, fun fact, I mean, you may have known that Paula Bennett's now doing this like talk show thing. Um, I've been invited onto it tomorrow. And now that she's not an MP, I'm really hoping that she comes out in favor of legalization and control of cannabis. And I'm like, hoping in my heart of hearts that that's what happens tomorrow because I also know that she like very like and this is the thing about so many politicians is that they really put up this quite disingenuous facade not really saying the things that you know that clicking away in the back of their head don't quite match up with what they're saying in reality so I'm hoping unshackled she will back the right way to do things I even find that with voters too, though. It's like they're so stuck in their head about the way that they should vote because that's the way they've voted for generations and that they can't see that it doesn't apply to them. Yeah, no, totally. or, you know, things can change. I mean, and this is one of the funniest things about, um, you know, the people who have a crack about things like that, you know, the Pootsie culture and the woke brigade and the identity politics oh. and stuff is that actually they're the most inclined to be identitarians. You ask them why they believe what they believe in, and they're like, what? (laughs) (laughs) I haven't really thought about that. It's, you know, like really throwaway terms like the economy, but ask somebody to explain to you what they think the economy is, and you'll get very different answers. Like the economy by definition is literally just allocation of resources. And there are like different ways of thinking about the, about the economy and economically. And like most recently, one of the most renowned international economists, I'm going to try not to give you an academic lecture here, but this guy, Thomas Piketty, um, he's like, Hey, everything's cooked. The way that we've been thinking about the economy for the past 70 years has produced one of the most unequal societies that we've seen since before the 1700 French Revolution. And this is not how you produce social cohesion. That is crazy. That's the yeah, truth. It like, is the truth. Yeah. Doing it better. There are ways to the do The economy has become this, it's like yeah. become its own human, you know? Yeah. Like people talk about the economy like it's one of their own children. <laughs> oh, their firstborn, for like, sure. People talk about the economy like it's some god. It's like the economy's angry at us. We've all got a sacrifice to the economy. Here's my first form. But it's like that's not what the economy is. The economy is actually all of us working together and it's supposed to serve us, not the other way around. Absolutely. I have like 
my I think since lockdown my relationship to capitalism has just completely flipped <laughs> and I just am like this on is capitalism. Yeah, yeah it just makes me it infuriates me because I just don't understand but then of course I like nice things like it's quite oh. a hard thing to like rectify in my head you don't have to get rid of the nice things. You just have to change our interaction with the market and the marketplace and the way that certain people make a whole lot of money. And it actually yes. all fundamentally boils down to the things that we value, right? So um, to really, as quickly as possible, unpack one of the biggest myths that we have about the way that we approach the economy. You'll hear particularly the opposition talk a whole lot about GDP, GDP, gross domestic product, mm. being the most important thing in society. But GDP um, was first invented by this guy called Simon Kuznets in the 1930s. He took it to the US Congress and he's like, here's a way to measure economic transactions in society, but God forbid, do not use use it as a measure of the welfare or the well-being of your citizens. 70 plus years later, we've been doing that. And the problem with GDP is that it just measures economic transactions. It doesn't measure the quality nor the distribution of those transactions. So GDP goes up when somebody gets cancer, when there's a natural disaster, when somebody's in a car crash, because there has to be economic transactions in order to undo that social ill. So GDP as a measure of how well we're doing is just mind-blowing, first and foremost. But we've all taken this as like scripture um, and the economy is supposedly this god. We have completely removed ourselves from the things that we actually value and care about. That is crazy. That is crazy. And especially as two people who are definitely like – you know, on earning close to like the living wage, like we're not, yeah. you know, Girl, and we're I'm, not from... I'm literally earning under minimum wage because I'm an apprentice yeah, and they can do that. Yeah. And it's so crazy because it is really important. And like, of course, while we're talking to you, we want to talk about like why people should vote, but I just feel mm. like it's so important for people our age and like a bit younger than us to really think. Yeah, know the engage. policies at least, not just know the know the colours of the parties. You know, like the green party. Well, you're not voting for a president either. Like this yeah. is the other thing. Everybody thinks you're actually so. The way that our voting system works, it sounds really boring, but probably a really good place to start. Is, no, it's great. Like this, this election is so like mad and special we have four votes this election normally you only Mm. have two so you've got obviously your electorate mp and the thing about voting in your electorate is that if a party is going to get over five percent then it actually doesn't change the proportionality of parliament at all so you should just vote for the person who you want to best represent you in the electorate seat um obviously in Auckland central if you're around um but then (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but then in terms um, the party vote, um, that is about the blocks of parties that you want in there to form a government. So if, for example, you want the most progressive left-wing government, then the Greens. You yeah. are still going to get Jacinda Ardern as Prime Minister. It just so happens that there's going to be a greater proportion of the Greens in there. Uh, same, same with if you are on the right, you don't have to vote for the big amorphous blue blob. You can vote for other parties that make that up. Um, and then you've also got the two referenda, which are uh, the end-of-life choice bill and, of course, the cannabis legalisation and control bill. It's going to be such a good election, but it's also all going to come down to turnout. And right now, we had a press release from the Electoral Commission last week. 500,000 eligible New Zealanders are still not enrolled to vote, and half of them are under the age of 30. 
That's so bad. That can change everything. Like that yeah. will change the cannabis referendum and that will totally. change how progressive our government is. Because is the re- the cannabis referendum at the moment sit- sitting at about 50-50? Is that still accurate? Yeah. It's on a mega knife's edge. So the way that polling works is that they obviously will poll all demographics so that they get as representative a sample of New Zealand as possible. But they also um, introduce skewing for turnout. So this is projections based on all of the polls at the moment, which are like 51-52% in favour, are all based on a 75% voter turnout which was us in the last general election in 2017 Mm. and we still had way lower youth turnout than anything else and I kind of understand it like it is a bit of a hassle when you know you're transient and you move flats all the time but the big problem is that like your landlord votes your boss votes and those people possibly different things to you absolutely absolutely and um, I think I, I think it was Helen Clark last night on an Instagram live was saying that this year you can not that people should rely on this, but if you're not enrolled, you can turn up and do it on the spot. Yeah, but but don't like rest on that. Actually, do it. Focus on your laurels because otherwise, like we will just cakewalk to defeat. Like it's not. Oh, no. the, yeah. yeah, and so- also really want to give other people more reasons to bash millennials like we've already ruined everything (laughs) (laughs) absolutely back on the cannabis referendum like we are obviously of an age group of people who are most likely going to vote yes having conversations with people that are older than us that are either on the fence or strongly against what is some of the kind of language we can use and things we can say to sort of turn them around yeah really good question um so the first kind of question is whether they think that people should be going to prison for using cannabis so this is the easiest way to get people from opposing reform to recognizing the importance of removing criminal penalties and then comes the issue of legalization and i'll walk you through kind of the whole process for that so um, first things first is 80% of New Zealanders have used cannabis by the time they are 20 years old. You currently right now have a population in this tiny wee country of 350,000 to 500,000 New Zealanders using cannabis on a weekly basis. Uh, But that also means that you have a majority of people in Parliament who have admitted to using cannabis back in the mists of time. Uh, And they now oversee, like, laws that criminalise people for doing exactly the same thing that they did. Mm. Had they been criminalised, they wouldn't then be in this position, which I find just absolute hypocrisy, but you can't say that word in Parliament because it's against the speaker. Yeah, that's so interesting. (laughs) You know, most people you talk to, um, whether they're conservative or progressive, would have probably used it. But if not, then they'll know people who will have used it. Ask them if they're comfortable with the fact that people can be criminalised for doing so. The most common refrain is, oh, but people aren't really going to jail for it. True. Only a handful of people are currently in prison for low-level cannabis offences, but also a handful of people are in prison for low-level cannabis offences. Take it a step back from that. 1,300 Māori are convicted annually for low-level cannabis offences. 80% of New Zealanders use cannabis uh, by the time they're 20, but 80% of New Zealanders do not have criminal convictions. That demonstrates that we don't have the rule of law, and we right now have a law which is being disproportionately applied to already marginalised communities. 
So most of the time people will go, okay, cool, I don't agree with that, so we should decriminalise, which is the common refrain of people who are trying to argue against the legalisation control referendum. So the next thing has to be to walk them through the reality that if you decriminalise, you are simply removing penalties from the people who use the substance. Drug dealers don't check ID, tinny houses don't care about the potency of the substance, and they may as well potentially be lacing it with something. Um, one of the funniest things about the first... Um, yeah, sorry, drill. Um, one of the first things about the um, first week of Canada's cannabis legalisation is that they had a massive withdrawal of uh, cannabis from the market because it had mould residue on it, which obviously has further harmful effects on people's lungs when they inhale it. You don't get yeah. that in the black market. So what you're able to do by legalising the supply chain is create regulations around it. This debate is not about inventing cannabis. This debate is not about endorsing cannabis. This debate is not about supporting cannabis. This debate is about recognizing that cannabis exists and we have an opportunity to better approach it, to reduce harm, particularly for younger people, to ensure that they use it later in life and not to excess, but also to improve community well-being so that adults who do decide to use cannabis can do so with education. Basically, the question has to be, on September 20th, do you want people to be able to buy cannabis from the black market or from a regulated outlet? That's kind of the decision that we're making here. Crazy. Oh, <laughs> someone's having a party. <laughs> I love it. So when, so when it passes, yeah. what happens next? What is that process like for you? So the process from there is uh, that we have a draft bill. So you're basically voting for the bill to go to first reading in Parliament. So I'll give you a really um, roughshod view of how an idea becomes a law. Um, basically, first reading, and this is the other really important thing about people's party vote, because you need to think about who you want implementing uh, this cannabis reform because it has to go through a bunch of stages after it's been passed, which simply means that it gets introduced to Parliament. So first reading, it'll get a vote through, then it goes to something called Select Committee. It'll probably go to Health Select Committee, and Health Select Committee um, is obviously focused on how you best increase well-being and reduce harm. There'll be submissions from the public where the general gist of the bill will not change, but there will be ambit for a few different pieces to be tightened up and that's particularly where, for example, the licensing regime may become a little bit tighter, where it's not currently super prescriptive in the law. Then you go to uh, what is called second reading. It passes through second reading. Then it will go to committee of the whole house. Committee of the whole house is a stage where basically, I'm not sure if you've had anything to do with American politics, but if you've watched any of the soap operas or uh, <laughs> there's a concept called filibustering, and it's a far yeah. more American is here but yeah, committee of the whole house stage yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah exactly it's weird <laughs> in the house and basically delay legislation as long as they can talk mm. so there might be a bit of that mm. uh, but after that committee of the whole house stage uh, you will then get third reading and then because we operate under um, a kind of constitutional situation called a constitutional monarchy, the Governor General signs it off um, on behalf of the Queen. And then we have a cannabis regulatory authority who begins setting up the cannabis legal regime. Wow. So that'll so take what, between nine to 12 months. Interesting. Interesting. Because I feel like some people may think 
that like they vote yes and then on the 21st it's like let's <laughs> <up>. <laughs> yeah unfortunately it won't be that quick um but again I think about um my forebearers and particularly the greens and the caucus like 20 years ago you had Nandor Tanksos uh who was advocating for this stuff and it's been 20 plus years yeah. that we've been fighting for it and also to be perfectly honest with you uh, we also know that the law isn't stopping people from using cannabis right now. So it's about whether we make Absolutely. that safer. Absolutely. Helen, Helen, Auntie Helen had a good <laughs> point last night. She was saying like when she was prime minister, um, the de- decriminalization of sex work were passed yeah. and went through. And she was like, well, do I really agree with that? No, I don't. But do I want someone to go for jail to go to jail for that no so I think for people who are a bit like unsure thinking about it in terms of some young kid say for example who gets caught because he thinks it's cool to go grab a bag from you know a tinny house and is then the rest of his life is affected it's just ridiculous and it's interesting to think about um yeah we're the number that you mentioned about like moldy in jail because of it how many uh, white men are in jail for possession oh, you know none unless they are high level suppliers and I will also tell you this much so having sat through um I remember the moment that kind of light bulbs went off in my mind so in my undergrad like several years ago I first did um, my BA in philosophy where I was really interested in like ethics and justice and how all of that applies and then I was like I will now go study a law degree as a kind of alternative to postgrad in philosophy and never intended to be a lawyer or have anything to do with it. It was actually to inform being a better journalist, which I thought I would be at the time. And I remember sitting in uh, a final sentencing for a case. So for people who aren't familiar with um, the criminal justice system, basically you end up being prosecuted for a crime. In order to be prosecuted, there's a lot of things that obviously happen prior. It's like the strength of the case and then it's whether, you know, you've got powerful family members or whatever who can decide to figure out ways to kind of get you around that situation Um, or the police officers, you know, and the accumulation of evidence. But then you're prosecuted and then you're found guilty you're not guilty after that you go through a a process called sentencing and in sentencing the judge gets to weigh up what are called aggravating i.e making the crime worse or mitigating i.e making the crime less worse factors Uh, and I was sitting um, as part of my criminal law paper uh, in the back room, oh, sorry, in the back of this room on the High Court in Auckland, uh, watching this 23-year-old white dude uh, who had a really fancy QC, which is like the top of the game lawyers, uh, who was representing him in a case for him importing like half a million dollars worth of class B drugs, pills. And he, uh, his QC was talking about the fact that he'd just got engaged fancy that uh his family members were there and they all looked prim and proper uh he had just got enrolled fancy that in a course to do um you know woodworking or something and all of these things were counted as mitigating factors towards his crime he was given home detention 
And I just think about how that law is being applied disproportionately to people who have, for lack of a better term, it's like genuinely just privilege. Like if you have a home that you can go back to, if you have parents who can afford to support you with that, if you are in a loving relationship because you don't have all of this childhood trauma, if you are like (laughs) all those things, you know, And I was just, it was blowing my mind. And this is not to say that I think that that guy deserved to go to jail. I don't. But what I do think is that that situation applied to somebody else who came from less fortunate circumstances would have resulted in their life effectively ending yeah. at that point. I you know, you know like a lot of the people I've talked to about um, about the referendum who have leaned to, the, to a no vote um, – they, it's not only they don't really understand what a yes vote means, it's also they don't fully understand privilege, which I think mm. this year um, has even, like, the word privilege has been thrown around for quite a few years now, but this year it's really come to the forefront of, uh, like, Instagram, social media, mm. especially, about, like, what it actually is and why you actually have it, you know, and what to do with it, you know, or not to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, recognize it is kind of the first yeah. call, right? But I mean, I think the other thing about people who are really deeply, like, think that they're really deeply opposed to the cannabis um, legalization and control bill is that they kind of go, I've seen all this harm that cannabis can cause. And it's like, well, bro, why are you voting to uphold the system that created all of that harm? Don't you want, yeah. like, what yeah. is your solution? Because you are literally, if you vote no, upholding the same co-relative yeah. laws and regulations that oversaw all of that harm. Yeah. So we yeah. needed we need a better system and we need to grapple with that reality. And that's the thing which just boggles my mind the most is people who are like, oh, but moralizing reasons. And it's like, that's not the hard reality of what's happening right now. And yeah. actually, if you were to talk about all of the problems with regard to cannabis, then you need to propose a better solution because right now you're just arguing to keep it as bad as it is right now. Yeah, totally. and that I mean that just right there. If if that doesn't like make someone think about why they're voting no, then they there's can, no hope for yeah, them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but some people are like you know, um, we have the same politician. I yeah, one of the like the deputy leader. Uh, sorry, the deputy um, drug law reform spokesperson for the Nats, and this is hilarious because um, drug law reform is a portfolio that the Greens invented, and it's the first portfolio that the Greens invented that the National Party has copied. So the National Party now has a drug law reform spokesperson, and that was originally Paula Bennett, um, but obviously now it's Nick Smith, and the deputy is this guy called Simeon Brown. Simeon Brown was at a debate with me at the University of Auckland not too long ago and was asked about whether he would vote in favour of homosexual law reform and for mm. uh, gay marriage nowadays, and he said no. And I was like, okay, cool. So we've like literally got a guy yeah. who is to admit that I shouldn't be able to marry the woman that I love uh, and who also is unwilling to look at the evidence on you know best approaches to cannabis. And if there is not a better showcase of how this is about moralizing and not about facts then I don't know what to tell you yeah that is crazy do how do you like find being up against someone like that I rewatched your famous interview with Duncan Garner from last year last night like how do you not just smash your head on the table I mean, it's really funny, right? So I get, um, I, particularly after I did a debate with a debate, it was more like attempting to 
speak to a brick wall um, with Nick Smith um, on the weekend. Yeah. And it was this really frustrating situation, right, where I am already really conscious of being a young woman in this position and, like, I need to have – I need to effectively – be one up on top of everybody to be considered mm. the same people because everything that I do I will be scrutinized way higher because I'm not only a young woman I'm also a green so it's like all of those things and I'm also seen as an outsider and whatever else so I like you know you can have all of the information and the facts or whatever but basically uh, you still end up being patronized by the idea of having no life experience and some people hear that and they're like, yeah, cool, she's got no life experience. Um, and some people watch that debate and it's re- like this is a really wild and interesting kind of experiment into perspective. But some people watch that debate and the thing that they came away with was that I was apparently patronizing. And I was just like, this is such a sexist way to view that because yeah. had you had a man in my position behaving in the same way that I did, I think you would have come away with quite different views. But you know, it's the unfortunate reality. Absolutely. So there's like the the thing around my age and, you know, my gender and all of these other things. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's like why young people, because you really speak to us, mm. you know, we're 28, 29, some of us. <laughs> um, and you like, I feel... 30, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah congrats. Okay. You're officially the youngest person who's ever been on the yeah. pod as well. So that's your list of youngest of, um, but you really speak to us. The things that you say, I'm like, I have felt that, yeah. or I agree with that, or I've been through that. And uh, if young people aren't getting out to vote, you've just got all these other people who are stuck in their ways. Yeah. Who, it's hard for you to reach them because all they hear, all they see is, oh, she's young, which yeah. I don't know. It's it so just ridiculous. seems unfair, but I mean, that's, it is unfair, yeah. It's unfair, but yeah. it's, I mean, it's kind of one of those cognitive biases that end up playing out, right? Human beings are like, we all don't see the world objectively. You're inclined to believe people who sound or look like you. And this is why you end up with the entrenching of kind of the, the old boys club or whatever else, because when somebody looks like you, you're like, cool. Yeah. You're the next one to follow me into this position. And this is the importance of things like affirmative action, which some people have perversely started seeing as discriminatory is that actually it's about actively recognizing how systems perpetuate themselves unless you have a fuse breaker. And I mean, this is the funny thing about so-called democracy right is that it's literally just the sum of its parts but the problem is that the fuse breaker that being particularly younger people but also disproportionately all marginalized communities who have been disempowered and disengaged for a long time they don't want you to vote like if you vote then you fuck that up (laughs) you you need to vote to change that if you are not voting then you are handing over power and wealth to the people who already have it yeah, and, and what do you say to people who are like, I can't see a way out. I can't see change. I can't, like it's been like this for so many years. I can't see how my vote would would make a difference. Um. So the first thing to kind of recognize is that like none of the stuff that we're dealing with right now is natural. Like the level of climate change, which you know scientists far smarter than definitely myself have put down to man-made emissions. Uh, that's that's man-made. You know, mm. the fact that we have 
plastic clogging up our oceans. That's not some natural phenomena. <laughs> that is man-made. Uh, the fact that we have, you know, like here in Auckland and downtown Auckland, homeless people sleeping outside of Louis Vuitton, that is not natural. Man-made phenomena. Like the way that things are and how screwed up they feel is not some natural thing that happened. It is literally because people in positions of power have made decisions that have created that environment. And I think it's really critical. Like we were talking about how small New Zealand is. Like we are literally populated twice the size of Melbourne. Um, if we all decide to use the power of our vote, everything changes. The power of the people is way stronger than the people in power. And if you think about those 500,000 New Zealanders who are currently not enrolled to vote, you obviously can't say that they're all homogenous and they're all going to vote in one certain way. But what you can say is that the left in particular are far less likely to vote. And this was one of the classic kind of arguments that was put up by, um, you know, right-wing commentators on Talkback Radio a while ago. But there is... Uh, like evidence-based connection between the left turnout being lower and rain. And I think what that actually shows is the extra burdens and extra hurdles that sometimes you have to jump over if you are somebody who believes in collective action. You know, like to vote is sometimes quite damn hard. You have to find an internet connection if you don't have data on your phone or like if you don't have a phone that is, you know, like there are so many things that you don't think about if you're so already entrenched in how easy and convenient life is. And that's the thing about privilege as well. And I think a lot of people, um, yeah, do see like the notion of privilege as something which is uh, an attack on them somehow. Yeah. But it's you had a bit of a head start in the race, buddy. Like that's not at all to say that you can't also work hard on top of that, but it is to say somebody else didn't have those same starting circumstances. Totally. I think the sooner you can recognize your own privilege, like the better off we're all going to be, but it is very hard to convey that to someone who like, is not yeah, ready. You yeah. know, so many people just aren't ready to like, <laughs> like have those hard conversations and ask themselves these really like uncomfortable questions. Like it's hard oh God, to be uncomfortable, had, you know? Yeah. I had the best conversation with um, my Nana on the weekend. Um, so I like oh, scheduled yeah. and my campaign calendar, um, uh, a one hour uh, like lunch with her for her birthday. And we were just talking about all of these things and about, you know, because politics, of course, always comes up. I don't know how to do everything is political, guys. Um, and I <laughs> uh, was just talking about basically being a National Party voter and all these other things and how she doesn't like the idea of tax. And I was just like, well, you know, how do you think that we actually go about fixing things like poverty? And she's like, well, people just need to work out of it. And I was like, yeah, but if you can never earn enough money to save, then you can't even dignity let alone get ahead like that is a theory that is not the reality and then you know I was like well how did you get your first house and she was like I sold my car as a deposit and I was like see like that's I'm not having a crack at you but things no. were different yeah now and that's not to bag out that you've yeah. obviously had a lot of challenges in your circumstances but it is to say that if I wanted to go hundy and like sell a car that I, I also don't own a car but if I had a car and I sell your bus pass and no one I know would be anywhere near close to a deposit for a house and that like kind of okay. accumulation of capital which then earns its own wealth while mm. you that is being taxed less 
actually not at all compared to people who are working. Yeah. How do we not see that those systems are created to benefit yeah. certain And also working hard doesn't mean that you still have enough money to do anything outside of functioning as a human no being. Way. You know? No, I mean, if, okay, if hard work was rewarded with wealth, then the emergency working nurses would be the yeah. wealthiest on the planet but they're not and they are still in like a number of them are still earning way less than what they should be totally so the next like six weeks are crazy for you chloe do you have a day off and when you do how do you what do you do to like chill out and get away from the noise I can tell you in all seriousness um that I do not have a day off (laughs) um I have so I've scheduled like little sections of like mornings or like in the middle of a day off. Um, so like I'll have an event at night, but you know, we just went through my calendar before and I have no evening free until the 9th of September, which is the 10 days out from the election and that'll all get filled up. Um, and we're currently just, you know, it's being filled with everything so that I can make sure that I'm doing my best to be out there and to campaign, but also to be there for folks who need a representative and want to talk about stuff. Um, so on my days off, if I had them, um, I would go see, <laughs> see um, who is a masseuse um, oh, nice. and get a um, that has become one of the, the greatest privileges and luxuries. Um but yeah, I would also, I just like, uh, so when um, me and my partner first got together, uh, she broke the cardinal rule of like not watching a TV show <gasps> separate no. from And then she was like, yeah, but you're never here. And I was like, true, fair. So <laughs> I would like to just watch TV for a bit, to be honest. With you. <laughs> Amazing. Because there must be days when you're like, I can't do this. Like, do you just go into auto mode or yeah to a certain extent definitely I mean to be perfectly honest with you it would like this is a really inhuman and this is I think why we end up with politicians who are deeply inhuman because when you have to do this stuff like 24 7 um as much as you try to hold on to your semblance of empathy and humanity and all those things and you can try really hard but you do end up having to go into some survivalistic mode of autopilot and that means that you know there are times when you have to kind of click yourself out of it and being like here I am right now (laughs) but on a day-to-day basis you know I wake up in the morning and I look at my calendar and that's what I'm doing for the day I do not have the capacity (laughs) to think like that it's the um the real importance I think is actually having that creative time and this is the the real like thing that blows my mind about our lack of recognition for creatives in this country mm-hmm. is we don't recognize the importance and actually all workers we don't recognize the importance of things like a weekend like actually in order to function as best as possible you do need rest and recreation and um julianne jenter who's associate minister of health and um one of my colleagues in the green caucus she's impeccable at reminding everyone of this she's got an amazing lecture on well-being and she's like so uh the all blacks are not expected to play their peak performance game 52 weeks in a year uh they have like 
weeks and weeks and weeks off on dedicated rest and that's intentional and then they'll do all of the training which is also intentional and then they'll do the performance but yeah. you know the yeah. the way that so many of us operate right now and this is like peak burnout culture but also that is the tip of the iceberg on um, decades yeah. of austerity and not paying people well enough and undervaluing um, frontline work is that we all end up running ourselves ragged and not having that time to operate in our peak performance. Yeah. Especially totally. you, I feel like um, in, in the position you're in, it's a fucking constant battle. You always have to fucking argue with someone about something, <laughs> you know? And try not to flip a table. Um, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, there, there is definitely an element of, um, and, and I was really conscious and aware of this going into it, right? Like, you also have to recognize that, you know, there are people who have very different opinions to you. Some of them definitely disingenuous, but others just need to work through their challenges. And, I mean, my email inbox is a perfect example of that. I get so many sent from my iPads. Uh, there's, like, it's a very certain graphic of people who want to have a pop at me about whatever. Um, and... I'll respond to all of them or as many of them as I can and say, so, you know, always politely and try and investigate why they're approaching me in the way that they are. Sometimes they'll come back with even more flaming by which point I'm like, cool, probably not going to come to a constructive conclusion here, but other times they'll start to soften and you will start to unpick those complex layers of humanity, um, which are like the guard that people put up to protect the way that they think. There's this real fascinating thing that happened um, subsequent to the 2016 elections in the States and to Brexit in the UK, mm. where all of these researchers in um, political philosophy and sociology and communications came together in different unis across Europe and the United States and tried to break down why politics is being seen to be more and more polarised, that being people not talking to each other when they have perceived disagreements. Mm. And essentially what they found is that most people have never had to explain why they think the way that they do. And if you like really start to unpick that, you know, you can walk into a group of people who watch Fox News and are conservative and say the word Trump and everyone's like, yep, um, you know, that word means something mm. and triggers something and it's got associations. But you can say that exact same word, walk into a room of progressives and say Trump and everyone's like, you know, and that means something else entirely different. So the best way to start unpicking that stuff is all the things that we teach our kids at primary school. It's, you know, actually to ask people questions, do it nicely and give them time to explain themselves. And ironically, most people who very deeply think they believe things actually don't know why. You know, yeah. ask somebody why they think the criminal justice system is the way that it is. And you'll come to find that most people's views in the criminal justice system, you know, or prison is exactly the same as it was when they were five or six or seven years old and were learning about the world and asking their parents, you know, what's that? Oh, that's a chair. What's that? That's a desk. What's that? That's prison. What's prison? That's where bad people go. That's where bad people go. And challenged or is not something that you have direct experience with will remain your worldview until you're 65 plus years old and that is what we need to start challenging and we're only going to be able to help people start to unpick this if they feel safe enough to talk about that that's so true oh this has been amazing i literally feel <laughs> so inspired yeah <laughs> inspiration is a mirror my friend if you're inspired by somebody it's literally just seeing something in somebody else that you like about yourself 
Yeah, we posted that on our Instagram after you had it on yours, and I just was like, oh, my God. It's, like, the <laughs> nicest thing. Makes you feel so good it's about gross. yourself. <laughs> I think it's, like, we have a tendency to, like, look at people and go, like, you're the one who's doing the stuff. And it's, like, no, you are enabling me to do the stuff. And, like, we're all doing this stuff together. Like, I'm sat here. Sorry, Leroy and Tyson, I'm going to show you. Um, in the sure campaign was. office, Hi. there's Leroy <laughs> campaign with Tyson who's managing our office. There's one of our hoardings that fell down. Um, but, Amazing. like, we were in this campaign office the other night after a debate, and it's like people were like, I feel like I, you know, Chloe's just the face of it, and this is just our campaign and our community and our whanau. And I was like, yes, that is exactly so what cool. we're doing. Like, that is what sustainable political change looks like. It should not be celebritized or individualized or whatever else. It has to be about a movement and about people coming together. And that's what yeah. resilience is. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, because a party is not just, it's not you and your team, it's us too. Like, we're a part of it. Totally. Yeah. And I really feel like that. Um, everyone's invited. Yeah. <laughs> and you can get invited by going to vote.nz. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you, Chloe, so much for joining us. We threw the format out the window, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> Honestly, format schmormat. Yeah, and one time. Format schwarbrat. Yeah, we'll do it in person one time when you're in Wellington and, like, you can breathe. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> no, we actually got um talking to the, yeah, my last name, Um, one of the Young Greens, Danny, uh, who is Young Greens co-convenor, has this hilarious thing of always saying my last name wrong. Um, so <laughs> they'll say, like, uh, Shrewsbury is one of the favorite ones. <laughs> but these are kind of different ones, yeah. Um, but, hey, thank I you guys that. so much for talking about stuff that matters. It's lovely. Oh, when we started this um, podcast, we're like, yeah, it's all just going to be about pop culture. And then by episode four, we were like, oh, yeah, politics is kind of pop culture. <laughs> we can't live in yeah, Wellington oh, totally. without being obsessed with politics. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't also, who can actually talk about pop culture without talking about, like, power dynamics or, like, totally. you know, the Bechdel test or any of those things about how uh, people in those uh, in films or in, like, comic books relate to each other and what that says about society and representation yeah it's all politics baby (laughs) thank you chloe everyone please go and follow chloe on instagram and do you have a little hangover for our listeners as we sign off to leave them with uh hangover would just be that i think it's really important that people recognize their own power um the power of the people is stronger than the people in power if you hate politics uh why would you let it get away with being as shit as it is go and vote (laughs) nice we love it thank you so much and we're thinking of you and hope you get that message soon (laughs) Oh my god, I love her so much. Thank you. She said love your work.